Our first scripture reading this morning comes from Acts 16, 16 through 31. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope was of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. This is the word of the Lord. So have I told you before that there is a whole industry of music called Texas Country? Have we talked about this before? I can't remember if we have or not. I love it. I'm a huge fan of Texas Country. Um, most of them are guys you've never heard of, but there are some guys... Uh, from that group that kind of made it out into some of the mainstream, guys like George Strait, uh, Willie Nelson. If you guys like different kinds of music, Lyle Lovett, uh, if you're, I don't know if you're fans of him. But there, there are some of those uh, bands that have become known through, through Texas country. But, but most of them really just sell albums kind of independently on their own. Uh, there is a, kind of its own little music industry in, in Austin, and, and they make their whole career just playing concerts and bars in Texas. Like, that's kind of the whole Texas country music scene. And, and there's a, a, a Texas country song that I really love, and it's called You Ain't Met My Texas Yet. And you ain't met my Texas yet. And, and, and basically the whole song is like a list of things that if you haven't done in Texas, then you ain't met my Texas yet. And it's, you know, sunsets in Amarillo. It's, uh, you know, had a barbecue at a certain place. If you haven't, you know, listened to Willie play at a certain, you know, venue, that kind of thing, then you ain't met my Texas yet. That's kind of the big idea. There's dozens of songs just like this one, by the way, uh, about Texas, because that's just what Texas people talk about is Texas. So... Um, but a lot, of, a lot of the songs have something to do with, you know, having, having good food. There's lots of restaurants that are kind of state famous or what, you know. Uh, and, and uh, you know, as far as food goes, Texas is known for fried foods that are pretty good. Uh, you know, like chicken fried steak, that's a big thing. 
uh, in Texas. It's got its own category of food called Tex-Mex that most of you have probably had something of. Um, you know, if you're eating chips and salsa, that's really a Tex-Mex invention. It's not actual Mexican food. They don't eat, they don't just sit and eat salsa like that. Um, you know, steak and enchiladas, that's a big Texas thing. Uh, you know, lots of spicy food, that kind of stuff. But when you think of Texas, the first food that, that, that comes to your mind probably is barbecue. I'm thinking. Barbecue is a big deal uh, in lots of places, but especially in Texas. And, and I've been fortunate to eat at some of the best um, barbecue places in the state. Um, Texas cares so much about barbecue that, that there's an annual challenge, and they call it the Texas Passport. Um, every year, there's a, a magazine that puts out, here are the top 50 places. A lot of them are kind of newer that maybe you hadn't heard of before. Uh, that are in the state, and it says, look, if you can make it to all 50 of these places in a year, then you get recognized, you get an award, and you get put into a drawing for all kinds of uh, gifts. And you have to provide proof that you've been to all 50. Like, you, you get this, like, almost looks like a bingo card. Um, and, and you have to provide proof that you've been to all 50. In fact, I think there may be a picture of, this was, this was the Texas passport from 2021. They call it the meat map as well. Uh, you know, just in case. So Texas is a big state. If you look at the top, uh, oh, kind of the middle left, there's El Paso. And then if you look over at the bottom right, there's Beaumont. Those are about 17 hours apart from each other. So to get to all 50 in a year takes some dedication and takes some commitment. You know, there's a couple up in the panhandle. There's usually two in Amarillo, but they didn't get on 2021. That's kind of a debated, controversial thing. Not going to argue about it, but that's okay. Uh, but you can see kind of in the, the big triangle there of Dallas, Austin, and Houston is, is, is most of them. So guys that live in Austin have a better chance of getting it all done than guys that like live up in Amarillo. Because how do you get to all 50 from up there? I've never done it. Uh, there'd be no, really no way to, to, to do that for me. But, uh, but there are like hundreds of guys that do this every year. This is not like a, a little thing. Like lots of guys go after the Texas passport every year. There's even like a subcategory of guys that can do it in three years. So you can hold on to that map, and people are finishing it up this year in 2023 and say, well, I didn't get it done a year, but I got it done in a, in a three-year time, and they get a secondary award. But anyway, so um, a couple of weekends ago, um, Beth and I went to Austin, Texas for a wedding. Um, and it was a wedding of a former student that I had had, that I had taught. Uh, I officiated the wedding. Um, Beth was a bridesmaid, uh, just a, a kid we'd been discipling for a long time. And, um, and, and being near Austin, there's a lot of things on the Texas bucket list of like, if you, you ain't met my Texas yet, if you hadn't done these things in Austin. Um, and so I got a couple of pictures of a few bucket list things that we got to do. So that right there, that's a German uh, place called Green. I said it wrong for a lot of my life, by the way. Uh, this was us getting to go to Green Hall. It's the oldest dance hall in Texas. So, you know, everybody who's anybody, George Strait has played there, Willie Nelson, anybody who's anybody, uh, you know, has played, has played at, 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 at Green Hall. It's, it is the place to, to see a concert in Texas. And it's an old, busted-up, warehouse-looking thing inside. You sit on benches if you, if you can get a seat. Um, it, it is the oldest dance hall in Texas. I think it's from 1878 which I know what you're thinking. Like, there's stuff in Stillman that's older than that. Like, that's really not that impressive. Um, but, you know, for Austin, they're pretty excited about it. So, um, 
Uh, the next picture is one that really does my soul good to look at. I want you to just kind of to, to get a, a good view, get the guy in perspective of the size of this thing. There's a guy in the very back of that. Look how many sausages are up on top. And then you've got racks of ribs, you've got briskets, which are about 15 pounds a piece, right? Uh, all in the back. Uh, this is an open, fit, open pit barbecue uh, at a place called Salt Lake Barbecue, which is one of the most famous barbecue restaurants in the world. Um, and that is the original pit. Uh, that's what they just started in a one-room house. That's the original pit from, the, I think, the 60s. Uh, it has been running continuously from the 60s. It, the fire has not gone out ever since it got started because they got so busy, they just, Christmas Day, they are smoking briskets uh, right there. Um, that's right in the middle of the restaurant. Uh, it's not the most kid-friendly space, as you can imagine. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, yeah, it, they try to keep people away. Anyway. Um, but it is one of, the, one of the, the, the top barbecue places in the country. In fact, Man vs. Food came there, that guy, if you like him. Uh, he did a, a brisket tasting, you know, all-you-can-eat brisket thing there one time and stuff like that. They claim to smoke 1,500 briskets a day because, uh, like I said, this is one of many uh, of their pits. It, the place is just humongous. Um, to serve 1,500 briskets a day is, is, is pretty incredible. Uh, and all of those things are just going 365 days uh, a year, night and day. You can actually get on Salt Lake's website and they'll send you a brisket. It's probably not worth the cost to you unless you're a big brisket fan. They will freeze, dry, whatever, they'll, somehow they shrink it and freeze it and you'll get it and you can, you can eat it. So, um, but to be a good citizen of Texas, you have to go to places like this. I think, is there another picture that, yeah, so there was... That is, that is, so when people talk about having barbecue, this is what comes to my mind. That's brisket and some sausage and some ribs and, and that kind of stuff. So to be a good citizen of Texas, you got to eat like this. It's not good for you, but that's how you have to eat. If you want to be a good citizen of Texas, um, and you got to listen to, you know, Texas country music and, and dance at the right dance halls and all that kind of stuff. What does it mean to be a good citizen as a Christian? What does it mean to be a good citizen of God's kingdom? That's our question for this morning. And so let's pray together as we, as we start our time. Father, would you guide us through your word? Would you help us to know what it means to be your people? Give us your truth this morning. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. All right, so we are in chapter 1 still of Philippians. So if you will turn there, we're going to read verses 27 through 30. 27 through 30. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side, for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So the last five weeks... We were in, I guess I'd call it a mini-series uh, on, on the idea of joy. 
and we were in Philippians chapter 1 for, for several of those. Uh, and then we, we looked at some other places. of What does it mean to live a life of joy as a Christian? How, how, do, we, how do we live a life of joy? And, and we, I guess I've just decided, we, let's just stay in Philippians. We're going we're gonna to keep working through it. Um, and, and so today's not a, a, a specific theme of joy, although joy is, is all throughout the book of Philippians because that's just who Paul is. Um, we're, we're just going to keep working through it. And so we're going to finish chapter 1 today, and then next week we're going to work in and start into chapter 2. Um, and because we're, we're going to spend a little more time in Philippians, I, I want to go give you some more background and a little bit more context to, to what's happening here. Because I think it's important as we keep working through this book. He's, he's talking to some of his favorite people, his favorite church, his, some of his best friends. What, what's happening here? and Why is he writing the way that he is? And so we, we read in the book of Acts, uh, Brian did just a couple of minutes ago, some of the things that happened in Philippi. And, and there was a, a longer passage that I didn't have him read, but, but it's the story of, of the founding of the church in Philippi. And, and it says that he, he leaves basically the east. He gets this vision from a man of Macedonia, and he crosses over the ocean, and he goes in. And the first place he's going to stop is Philippi. And he meets this woman named Lydia, and she's there praying. And he says, well, let me tell you about Jesus. And, and so um, that's, that's kind of the starting point. And so I want to show you... Uh, a little bit of a picture of where Philippi is. Um, so Philippi is up here at the top. Uh, you can see over on this side some of the other places. There's, there's where they're coming from, right? This is where Christianity begins. The first missionary journey, like they're kind of in this area. And now they're going to keep moving. And so they're going to head, leaving what we call Asia Minor. And this line right here starts Europe. Uh, this is, this is the Europe-Asia line right there. And so Paul was going to go to Asia Minor, and he says, the Holy Spirit leads me, and I started going. I went west. And so they cross over into that area right there. There's a, uh, I think the, there's another a picture of what Philippi looks like today. It was lost for a long time. We found Philippi, I think, about 70 years ago, something like that. Um, if you look at it, there's the, there's the remains. Down here is actually the remains of a big Christian church uh, because Philippi becomes one of the, the cultural uh, Christian, you know, one of the main capitals of, of the Christian faith. Um, so there are ruins of a couple of different churches. If you look right there, that's a big, like, auditorium, uh, a Roman auditorium where they would have plays and, and competitions and Olympic games and things like that. So this, this truly was a, a beautiful city, had lots of, of Roman architecture. It, it, it becomes called Little Rome uh, at a, in certain parts of its, of its life, I guess you'd say. It really is, Philippi really is the turning point for Paul. Things really start to change in his ministry and what he's going to do when he starts and, and goes west to Philippi. Uh, Lydia, we will call the first European convert to Jesus. Everyone else would be Middle Eastern or Asian. And now Lydia and, and others start to, things start to change. Um, and Philippi is, the, is a really interesting city. It, it was very loyal to the, to the Roman Empire, and that's part of why it gets its name as, as the Little Rome. It started as a Greek city, uh, and it was uh, named after Philip of Macedon, which is why it's called Philippi. And if you remember your history, Philip of Macedon, do you remember who his son is? 
Alexander the Great, that's right. So, so Alexander the Great just kept on doing what his dad had been doing. And so Philip conquered this area, um, and it's named in his honor. Um, it, it, become, it, it is definitely a part of the, of the Greek world. Um, but later on, it will, it will truly embrace Roman culture, and, and it, it's very, very proud of it. And, and you even heard it in, in our Acts passage where it said, hey, this isn't proper for Romans to be even listening to this gospel, right? Because we're proud Roman citizens. Um, there's, there's a major battle in, in world history that takes place here called the Battle of Philippi. Um, if you remember your Shakespeare, you will know once Julius Caesar is assassinated, there, there's kind of a split, isn't there? There's, there's a split of those who are loyal to Caesar, and then, and then there's, some, there's some other guys. And so um, uh, Mark Antony and Octavian are the two who are loyal to Julius Caesar. And then you had, remember Brutus? He's the one, E2 Brute. You guys remember your literature. Uh, and then a guy named Cassius. And those two were trying to lead the revolt and, and the Roman Empire a different direction. Well, the battle between those two armies happens at the Battle of Philippi, and it is the decisive battle. And Philippi says, hey, we're going to be loyal to Octavian. We're going to be loyal to Mark Antony. Uh, and, and because they do so, once that, that side is victorious, they say, look, you're all now Roman citizens, which was the biggest deal that could have happened to them. The whole city of Philippi was considered to be Roman citizens. And so they, they dedicated buildings in Rome's honor and the emperor's honor and they worshiped all of their gods and, and they just went all in and, and were proud of, of their Roman citizenship. In fact, they became such a Roman place that um, uh, Augustus Caesar said, well look, these guys love us. If you've served with me, if you fought as a soldier, I will give you land in Philippi and you can retire there. So Philippi became the Florida, if you will, of Roman soldiers. It's where those guys, they got land and they went to retire. They loved the weather, they apparently, and they got free land. And so it was a place full of soldiers. And so we're going to see Paul actually use a whole lot of soldier imagery and, 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 and language to, to, to talk to these folks who are proud, proud Romans and, and, and proud of their kind of soldier heritage. We also read in our Acts passage that, that this, is, this is a place that, that Paul gets beat up. He starts to encounter some persecution. And why? Because he's going against Roman religion and Roman culture. And, and so the, the Christians who stay are going to face that very same stuff. And so Paul's writing to his good friends who, who he says, you're now facing the same things that I did there. You're getting this, the same treatment that happened to me there. It's happening to you. And so that's a part of the background of, of what we just read in, in 27 through 30. They are facing hard times. He knows they're already in it and more is coming for them. And so he says, look, it's important. I'm going I'm to give you some advice as you face these hardships, um, similar to what I've already had to endure. And so Paul's going to give them two keys in our passage. We would just call them keys to living in an earthly city as heavenly citizens, okay? How do you live in an earthly city as heavenly citizens? And so I want you to just look at verse 27 again. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. The, the best translation of this first part of verse 27 is this only behave as citizens worthy of the gospel 
that's how they would have heard it. That's the, the, the language of it. We've changed it a little bit to make it easier for us to understand. But that's what he says. Only behave as citizens worthy of the gospel. And, and for Paul to use the word citizen there, it, it was intentional. And it would have immediately reminded them of their Roman pride in their Roman citizenship. He says, look, you guys are citizens. You know what it means to live as citizens. I want you to learn what it means to live as citizens of the gospel. So he says, look, you live as, ro- as worthy Romans. You honor all the things that you're supposed to. You, you get all kinds of, uh, of rec- you know, recognition for that. I want you to live in light of God's kingdom, as citizens of that as well. And so Paul's going to use the imagery of a soldier as he tells them the, these kind of two things he wants them to do. And, and the first one is this. He says, look, you need a selfless humility that fosters unity. So that's the first idea he's trying to give them. A selfless humility that fosters unity. Notice he says, I want you to stand firm in one spirit. And, and scholars say he's speaking of the Holy Spirit in that case, right? Not just like, oh, we have a spirit of unity. He's like, no, the spirit of unity is what you need to have. The Holy Spirit of unity. And he says, look, the Holy Spirit brings unity. It brings consensus. It brings you all, you know, a combined, united purpose together. This is the stuff he's already been talking about. We've, we've already heard some of this a few weeks ago in the very beginning of Philippians 1. This idea that you've got the same purpose. It brings unity when we're all working together for the sake of the gospel. And I want you to just kind of hear that, that soldier imagery as he says, look, I want you to strive. And that's a very, very uh, soldier verb there. Strive, he says, side by side. Strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. Striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So if I was a coach in a huddle, we would be talking about how we have to you know, work together as a team and you know, not let the other team divide us and you make sure you're playing for each other and, and, you know, don't play for your own glory, play for the team. That's the kind of, that's coach speak, right? That's the stuff we would, we would be talking about in a, as a huddle. We're only as strong as our weakest member, so we got to stick together, all that kind of stuff. I'm not a coach, um, and, and I think it's, you know, fair to say that most of us as American Christians are so individualized with our faith um, that, that, that I think any kind of team analogy throws us off a little bit when we're talking about faith. About working together and sticking together and having unity, striving side by side. That, that, that's not what we've been taught American Christianity looks like. Right? It's having your own quiet time. It's reading your own Bible. It's having your own devotions and, you know, all of that. But Paul is saying there's something bigger here. There's a bigger piece to what faith is supposed to look like. This speaks against the way many of us as Christians live out our faith, right? We, we live without a group of believers around us. We kind of live it on our own, Iso- isolated in our own practices and our own individual preferences. Christianity was not meant to be lived on our own. It was meant to be lived out together, and that's part of what Paul is getting at here in selfless solidarity, selfless solidarity. Notice that Paul has been living out the example in the last few weeks. Remember, he says, look, put me in jail, that's fine. I will rejoice because that's what's best for the gospel. He says, look, if I live or if I die, it doesn't matter. It was for the good of the gospel. 
God's purposes are going to be, you know, be, be gone. It's going to happen whether I, I live or die. I don't care. That's selfless solidarity. He's, he's living out the example he's, he's, he's calling them to do. All I care about is if people know Jesus. It doesn't matter you know, if people are doing it in the wrong motives. It doesn't matter. We're all together because we're working together for the gospel. And, and Paul would say, and you and I would probably get, this type of selflessness, this type of solidarity doesn't, doesn't come naturally to us. Our, our tendency is to focus on ourselves first. I want to make sure I'm okay. I'm, I'm going to deal with me and my stuff. I don't, I'll get to other people if there's time, if there's leftovers, but I really got to focus on myself. Why should I care about other people's problems? That's not really, you know, kind of human nature is to, to worry about other people's problems. How do we get this kind of love? Where does it even come from? And I would say that kind of selfless love is from the gospel, which is exactly what Paul is saying here. That kind of love is found in the gospel message, where Jesus would take on the sins of others. He would take on what others couldn't accomplish for themselves. And he says, I will die for you so that you can can have eternity. So Paul says, look, how do we live as citizens worthy of the gospel? It's to care for others, to be united, to have selfless love like Jesus did. That's the gospel. We're supposed to live like it. Okay, the second thing that Paul says uh, to make us you know, live like citizens of the gospel, he says it's courageous confidence that withstands suffering. Courageous confidence that withstands suffering. Let's look at verses 28 through 30 again. It says, Don't be frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. They didn't earn any salvation. Okay, just note that as, as, as he's speaking. That salvation is from God. Verse 29, he says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict you saw I had, and now here I still have. So the word Paul uses here, that frightened thing there at the beginning of verse 28, it's a different word than he would have normally used for fear. Um, It's a word that actually has the connotation of horses scattering and stampeding. Now, if you've been around horses, you know they get scared for no reason right? Uh, A fly can buzz in the wrong way, and they're going to take off and lose their minds. A a mouse can run by, and they're going to lose their minds. They they do things out of fear all the time. The uh, the other imagery that that this this verb gets used for is is an army retreating from battle. Okay, so this is not just like, I'm afraid. It's, I'm terrified and running for my life. Okay, that's like horses, armies retreating. And he says, look, you've got to stand together. Don't retreat, don't panic, stand together. Paul is is trying to say again what he said just a few weeks ago. If you're members of the gospel, then there is nothing that this world can do to you uh, that's not an ultimate win, that's not an eventual win. Everything is a win-win now because of the gospel. Now, I get that's easier said than done, right? Don't be afraid because of the gospel. You don't have to fear anymore. That's easier said than done. But we're called to stand shoulder to shoulder in unity. And we ask God for the right strength 
and for the mind to remember that to live is Christ and to die is gain. And so nothing, nothing can, can keep either of those things, you know, the, as the good news of the gospel from happening. Because to win is Christ and to die is gain. It's a win. But Paul is also saying courage is a whole lot easier in the body of Christ than it is alone. And, and hopefully you've lived in the church or lived in a community of believers and seen that and experienced that, that it is easier to have courage when you've got people standing side by side, shoulder to shoulder with you, than when you're trying to do it by yourself. Okay, so can I tell you that I remember reading this passage? This is one of the first like books I remember studying as a kid, uh, kind of reading in like a youth group or something, was, was the book of Philippians. And and can I just tell you, I don't, didn't like this part of the passage very much. I, I distinctly remember hearing it as a, you know, kind of a youth and going, well, dang, that, that, I don't know that I like that. That sounds pretty hard. And that's because I had somebody teach it to me um, in a way that I guess I'll just say was kind of discouraging, okay? Um, because I think the human response to reading something like 27 through 30 uh, is to think, be worthy, be worthy. Okay, live, live worthy. Got it. How do you live a life worthy of, of Jesus? How do you live a life worthy of the cross? And so I kind of can remember thinking, okay, I'm just supposed to be like a really good kid and don't do bad things. And, and maybe that's what it looks like to live, you know, to live a life worthy of Jesus. Don't get in trouble, and Jesus will be happy with you, I guess. That was kind of the best I came up with from, from the way that it had been sort of taught to me at that point in my life. And, and it really wasn't until I, I, somebody gave me, my senior year of high school, gave me Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. Some, some of you have probably read that book, but uh, I, remember, I remember reading it and, and kind of hearing, hearing things a little bit differently. And, and, and I remember when he said, you know, no one knows how bad they really are until they've tried very hard to be good. You, you remember that little part? It's kind of a famous quote out of mere Christianity. Nobody knows how bad they are until they've tried very hard to be good. And, and I went, yeah, I, I've been there. I, yes, yes, Lewis, you got me. You know what I'm talking about. I'm, I don't feel very good because I've tried really hard to be good, and I realized that I'm actually pretty bad. And, and so later on in that passage, uh, Lewis says essentially, like, Christ was the only one who was ever really good. And, and he also fully knew temptation. And so, so he, he, because he resisted it, he's the one who knows more about temptation than anybody. And I started to realize, hey, maybe the gospel is more than I thought that it was. Maybe, maybe there's better news than just be good. And, and I will just say, I think it, it's probably been a journey for the rest of my life to try to know more about the gospel and, and to know more about grace because I've tried very hard to be good and I realized that I'm very bad. And, and, and that worthy line just doesn't add up to the human experience. I want you to look again what I think is the key to the passage, and it's in verse 29. It says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. That phrase, granted to you, uh, is actually more like it has been graced to you. It's the word grace there. It's grace turned into a verb. Or you can just say it's been gifted to you if you like that better. It's been graced to you. It's been given to you. 
granted is there, but just make sure you get this idea of grace because that's, that's the core of the word. It says, this has been gifted to you, been given to you. What? Look there again. What has it been gifted? The gifts of faith and suffering. The gifts of faith and suffering. The gift of faith sounds pretty good. That sounds like good news. The gift of suffering does not necessarily sound like the good news of Jesus when I first hear it. But Paul has already said just a few verses ago that suffering brings glory to Jesus. And so there is good news in the sense that if you suffer for your faith, it's a sense of belonging to Jesus. And it's a sense of being on his team and working for the good of the gospel. God is glorified in you in all of that. And so it it, it is good news, even though it doesn't feel like it right away. And so he's going to say, look, there's no need to fear suffering in the light of grace and in the light of eternity. Here's the thing about grace. It gives you what you cannot get on your own. Did you hear that he said your faith was a gift? Your faith was a gift as well. It's all grace. It's all a gift. You will never be good enough to live a life worthy of the gospel. We all struggle probably to answer that question. Am I, am I good enough? Am I living good enough? Am I worthy? And the answer, unfortunately, and I don't mean to knock your self-esteem today, but the answer is no. You're not good enough. You're not worthy. You will never be worthy, but that's okay because it's been given to you. Your worthiness has been given to you from Jesus. That's the gift. That's the good news that's in the passage that's why there's hope. It's because you're not good enough. But Jesus is. Jesus is. And, and so you'll never be good enough. You'll never have faith enough. You'll never suffer enough to be worthy of Jesus. We are not worthy. But it's been given to us. It's been given. That's what makes it grace. And and he also says the Spirit has been given to us, by the way. The Holy Spirit has been given to us. The gift of the church has been given to us. Again, grace that we didn't deserve. So all of these things, through unmerited grace, gives us the stamp of Jesus. And so God looks at us and says, you are worthy. You are worthy. You are citizens of my kingdom because you've been stamped by Jesus as worthy. You've been stamped by Jesus. We've been given that gift. And, and he says, there's, there's now the grace through the Holy Spirit. There's, there's grace to equip us. There's grace to deal with fear. There's grace to stand side by side in solidarity and not retreat when things get hard. See, grace can shatter our fears. Grace can also shatter our pride. Grace can give us courage, and it can also help us have selflessness and patience to live with others in solidarity. Our citizenship is is the Lord's is, is in the Lord's heavenly kingdom, and that's a free gift of His grace. It's not given as an award. So the Philippians understood getting awards for valor and courage as soldiers and and being given citizenship because they had earned it in battle and they had earned it in loyalty. 
And, and Texans think they can earn their citizenship by eating good barbecue and dancing in the right dance halls and listening to the right music. That's how you can earn citizenship, right? But God's kingdom is something very, very different than that. We earn our citizenship by grace. So because of the grace of God, we are citizens. And because of the grace of God, we can show the gifts of Jesus. We can live in the Holy Spirit who accomplishes all of this for us like we never could. That's grace. Let's pray. God, we're not worthy. We don't deserve your love and your kindness. We don't deserve the gift of grace through Jesus. But that's the whole point. We could never earn it. We could never achieve it. We could never deserve any of it. But you loved us even though. You made us your sons and your daughters and you've given us Jesus. You've given us the gift of faith to trust in Jesus. By grace, you've made us citizens of your kingdom. God, help us to live that out in the grace of Jesus through the equipping of the Holy Spirit. Not in any power of our own, not in anything we can do by ourselves, but through your Holy Spirit. God, give us unity as a body. God, help us have people around us who can help us live this life with courage and unity. God, we need your help. We ask all this in Jesus' name.